Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. You know, the 2008 recession left a scar on a lot of entrepreneurs' psyche. And Kevin Sullivan is no exception. So Kevin Sullivan was running a printing company, um, was a very successful printing company, you know, fat margins. He and his partners were taking out lots of money. Um, and the 2008 recession hit. And they almost lost the business. They were $900,000 into a million-dollar line of credit when the bank called and asked each of the partners to invest in the business. And what happened next is an interesting story. I'll let Kevin tell it in a moment. Eventually, they were able to successfully pull the business around. His partners were just happy to get their names off the note and didn't want anything for the business. Kevin knew they could do better based on the profitability of the business. They got an offer for two or three times earnings, but Kevin was hopeful for six. And in the end, he was able to do even better than that. So I'll let you tell, I'll let Kevin tell you the rest of the story. Enjoy the interview. So Kevin, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you, John. Tell us a little bit about this business, CCS Digital. What did you guys do? Well, CCS Digital was the third largest privately owned uh, traditional and digital printing company in the Seattle area at the time of the sale. So we were we pretty much took care of major accounts in the area like Microsoft and Amazon, uh, Boeing, and the larger firms in the area to service whatever printing needs they might have. So if I needed a brochure printed or a trade show booth, you know, you would do that stuff for me. We did that, and we did a lot of books and and publications. That was one of the the niches that we were in is short run books and manuals. So it was a, a good business for a long time for us. Good, and so you you built it up pretty pretty good size. I mean, how many employees did you have when you sold it? At, uh, at the end, we had 95. At our high point, we had about 165 before the recession, but I'll explain that a little bit later when we talk about why we sold. Yeah, we'll talk about it now. What was the trigger that uh, made you want to sell? Well, to be honest, the uh, financial recession really broke our backs. Uh, I had two partners in the business, and in 2009, we just didn't expect the decline that we were going to see. We'd grown the business to about $16 million, and uh, all of a sudden, we had this huge reversal. We lost about 50% of our revenues, and we had to lay off half our employees. And uh, it was a very difficult time for us. So in the course of trying to save the business, which took us about three years from 2009 to about 2011, we just made a determination that uh, if we could get it back to a profitable status, it was time to sell. And we did. You know, it's so interesting because I think so many entrepreneurs listening to this will will relate to the comments you just made. I mean, we've just come through this is a recession, which thank goodness looks like it's over, but man, it was uh, a real challenge for a lot of business owners. Yes, it was. It was, uh, it was probably in some ways the worst of times for us, um, but I probably learned the best business lessons you could possibly learn in taking a business right to the brink of extinction and you know, literally picking it up on the shoulders of myself and my partners and, and bringing it all the way back to the same level of profitability, if not the same revenue, and then finding somebody who wanted to buy it. It was very rewarding, but it was, I would never want to do it again. Tell us about that journey. So take us from the low point where, you know, you've lost half your revenue, you've had to lay off most of your staff. What were the keys to getting you back uh, in business again? What were, you know, if you could distill it down to two or three big moves you made, what would you say those were? Well, yeah, that's a good question. And I think, um, you know, a lot of the, the um, ideas in your book really resonated with me. And, and really what we decided we needed to do was that we needed to build the business around excellence. We wanted to be, we actually stated that we wanted to be recognized as the most excellent business operations and profitability company in our region. So that if we built the company to be excellent, 
somebody would want to buy it. And if we built it to be excellent and nobody wanted to buy it, we'd be making money again. Isn't that interesting? So how did you guys define excellent? Um, well, primarily it was around financial success. We had always been a money-making company. In fact, it was a bit of a cash cow for us for a long time. The company was 27 years old when we sold it, and we had never lost money up until the recession. So for us, uh, it was getting back to that level of profitability that provided the incomes that we all had come to expect because, of course, over a long period of time when you make money, you tend to commit to things that you need to pay for. So <laughs> there was a strong motivation to get back to the point where we could you know, not have a bankruptcy, obviously, but get to the point where we could pay all of our bills and retain our houses and send our kids to college and all the other commitments that we've made. And so you were able to do that by focusing in on excellence. For you, that def that was defined by, you know, financial performance, because yeah. printing is usually a pretty low margin game. It is. And I think, you know, the thing about the printing industry is that generally there are a lot of profit underperformers because there's a lot of very small business owners that may have come out of the production side and they've never really operated a business. We had always learned how to have a niche where we could ask for a fair price and still be competitive for our customers, but run a very lean operation that allowed us to bring a lot of dollars to the bottom line. So that was always one of our strengths. And in fact, when we did eventually sell, that was one of the things that the buyer noted through the entire sales process is they were very impressed by our EBITDA contribution and they wanted that. And they wanted, uh, they wanted us to show them how to do that. So it ended up being very, very important to the transaction. Who was the buyer? Uh, the buyer was a company called DCG1 in Seattle, which was actually the largest uh, local printing firm in the area. So it was a direct competitor. And in part, they wanted to know your secret sauce for pulling more you know, profit down the bottom line. Yeah, I think they, they really saw that what we did was something that was enviable. They have a really good business. They're good people. Um, but the niche that they were in was not uh, translating to the same profitability. And so they wanted to kind of learn what we were doing. And, of course, they were attracted to the customer base and the assets and the people in the business. So, but, uh, Interesting. Was there any conversation or, or were you worried at all about instead of buying your business, they may just basically go through the diligence process, learn your secret sauce, and then walk away from the deal and, and basically have your intelligence uh, you know, without actually buying your business? Well, you know, that's a really good question. And I had a number of uh, advisors through the, through the process of thinking about selling who warned us about talking to local competitors and of course you can protect yourself with non-disclosures however you can't really ever do that uh, we did have a, a buyer prior to dcg who had made a run at us got all the way to a term sheet uh, signed the term sheet called the next day and canceled the deal and of course they'd performed diligence for a couple of months on us and uh, it was a little distressing but they ended up being honorable and it didn't become a problem and, and in that case, the, the deal that didn't consummate or close, uh, what, what gave them cold feet? Um, you know, that's an interesting question. I don't know that I'll ever know the answer. Uh, what I heard from the, the owner of the company was essentially that he hadn't talked to his operations team about the challenges of an acquisition, and it was kind of a play that he'd made on his own. Uh, he was more of an investor than an actual business operator. So... He took it all the way to a term sheet and then got his executive team involved. And they said, no, <laughs> we don't want to do this. And he listened to his operations team. So it was a little backwards. But, uh, you know, I understood. We're still friends. So I see him around. 
Got it. So back to the deal where you actually did close on. You were worried about giving away the secret sauce to some extent. You you protected yourself with a non-disclosure agreement. You know, is there anything else? That, did you hold anything back? Did you say, you know, when the check clears, I'll tell you X, Y, and Z? You know, there really wasn't a reason to hold anything back. I, I really believe in transparency. And I think in order to drive the highest, you know, business valuation, you know, to get the most money for your deal, you really need to show them everything. And they need to be able to see that you're that transparent because obviously when you're buying a business, I have never never bought one, but uh, when you're buying a business, I believe that it's confidence that you're buying. You're buying the confidence of the owners and, you know, the confidence of the customers in the operation. So holding things back would have probably decreased the value. There was really nothing that um, I could say that we held back. And then, of course, the diligence process and the representations and warranties don't allow you to hold anything back anyway. <laughs> right. And for those listening who don't maybe know what those are, reps and warranties are what you basically are agreeing uh, to with, with the other party that, that you are representing to be true in the event that, you know, you misrepresented something, it can come back to uh, a legal dispute at the end of the day. So you've got to go through and basically uh, come clean. If there are things that, uh, you know, are skeletons in your closet, you've got to uh, make those clear. And if not, then uh, you run the risk of a potential lawsuit downstream. I want to go back to, before we get into the actual deal mechanics and talking a little bit about how the deal was structured, I want to go back to this this notion of, of why the triggering event. So you, you've gone through the Great Recession. You've got the business, while not up to its size, certainly back in, the, in, you know, in profitability, you guys are paying your bills again. I mean, a lot of, a lot of people would have, at that point, doubled down and said, well, if we could, you know, if we, if we could shoulder through the worst recession in the history of mankind, with the exception of the you know, 1930s, then we can handle anything. Let's go take on the world. Let's scale this business up another threefold. But, but you chose not to. You, you, so tell us, get it inside your head. Did you, did you contemplate you know, that decision? Was there anything else that contributed to your decision to, uh, to sell? Well, I would say that the, the industry that we were in, uh, you know, printing has been in a slow uh, and but steady decline for, for years and years. Uh, and so for us, uh, we were looking at really uh, as fast as we sold and brought new deals to the company, there were customers that would tell us, we love your services. We love your firm. However, next year, we're going to spend 30 to 40 percent less with you. And it wasn't just one or two customers, but it was most of our major customers. So we had to work so hard to keep the revenue line at the same level when at the, when our pleased customers, when the people that really loved us were actually doing less business with us. And it was, it was discouraging actually. And I think that's just any business that has kind of reached maturity and has started to go into decline is going to be facing something like that. So that was one factor. The, the other factor was I had two business partners and they, uh, I, I can't tell you how scared we were during that recession. Um, in 2010, when our revenues shrunk to half and we went, you know, well into our line of credit with the bank, the company never had debt before. And, you know, we all imagined that we were going to lose everything. We were going to lose our homes. We were going to lose all of our savings. We were going to file bankruptcy. We'd signed extensive personal guarantees, not just on the lines of credit, but on the equipment that we used in the business. So it really left a scar. Uh, and in particular on my partners and they were not really willing to, uh, to continue to own a business in that industry any longer. And, and we were all getting a little older too. So 
there were a number of factors that drove us there, but we'd actually reached a point in 2006, if you recall the, the housing bubble and, and the boom when you know everything was was going crazy, where we were making money hand over fist, and we sat around the table and said, why would we ever sell the company? And just you know, four five short short years later, it was like we need to sell this company for anything we can get. So, um, you know, going from being almost out of business to achieving the same level of profitability that we achieved in our at our very high point back in 2006 we knew it was time to sell it was just we knew it was time to find somebody that would look at our profitability and say we want your business and we told them that story we told them the story of and they all had similar stories from being in the industry but we ours was much more severe but our recovery was very quick too so how big was your line of credit it was a million so, so you were into that personally. So, if you had defaulted on that line of credit, you would—they would have come after you personally. Yeah, personally, and they would have come after what's left of the assets of the business and seized the accounts receivable. It would have been an ugly mess. It was just not an option. And you know, the bank came back to us too, and they—they they made us reinvest. They basically had us buy them out of the line of credit. Uh, you know, at least half of the line of credit wasn't really available to us. So, it, we were too invested to fail, basically. I don't understand that. So when you say they, they bought you out, I mean, during the depths of the recession, they made you put more money into the business or actually cut your line? Is, was that? No, the line stayed where it was. They were really good about it. I don't have anything bad to say about the bank. They made a good business decision, but they came back to us and said, listen, you're eight or $900,000 into your million dollar line. And, you know, based on the performance in your business, we were not meeting our bank covenants. They said, we don't want to see this line of credit more than about four or $500,000. So you guys need to come up with cash and pay us so that uh, the line of credit drops to about that level. And so it was pretty frightening because now, now we're reaching into our own pockets and, and putting money where we thought the bank was going to be. But, you know, back then in that financial recession, the banks were extremely wary. And, uh, and we were lucky that they didn't just close on the line of credit altogether, which would have really been difficult. We could have afforded it, but, uh, you know, I mean, that would have panicked us <laughs> even more than we felt at the time. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship you have with your partner? So there were three of you guys. Were you guys equal shareholders? Did you get into the business together? Maybe just talk a little bit about that dynamic with your with your your partners. Sure. Yeah. No, that's a good question. So um, I was I was selling business equipment and, and managing sales uh, groups in the Seattle area for about sixteen years, and one of my very good friends in the business left to start this uh, this digital printing company in about nineteen eighty seven. He actually asked me to be a partner at the time and would have sold me, uh, you know, blocks of stock for like three grand for 10%. And I said no, which was kind of a bad decision at the time. But he'd grown the business up uh, along with his brother-in-law to about four or five million dollars over eight to 10 years. And, and then they kind of got stagnant and then they began to see some some decline in their business. And I was flattered when he when he took me to lunch one day and, and said, you know, I'd like you to, to come over and be a partner and, and be the president of my company and run it for me. And he, there was basically an earn-in agreement with him over a five-year period. He set an aggressive target to triple the size of the company, and if that happened, I would I would earn into twenty percent of the stock. Uh, so there was no uh, money that traded hands in order for me to to get that equity. It was just sweat equity, and it worked out. It worked out well. We actually did it. We tripled the size of the company in five years, um, and so it was very rewarding. Uh, that that was kind of one of my business strengths was was business development and also operations. So he just turned the firm over to me. Um, both of them kind of went into semi-retirement. They both owned houses in Sun Valley and they were gone most of the year. And I, I just enjoyed being the guy, you know, and running the company and, and, and winning the deals. And they were there and 
involved when they needed to be or were interested. And I kept them in the loop all the time. But for the most part, they they successfully turned the company over to me and let me grow it. So, so let's get into the sales. So, so you decided as a as a, that you and your two partners decided to sell once you'd stabilized the business. Was there any discussion among the partners that it was the right time, or were you guys unanimous? No, it was very unanimous. Um, we'd had, like I said, we'd had the com- conversation in the high times that that you know maybe we should sell, and they said, and we all said, well, why would we were making so much money? But um, when things got got difficult. Uh, Actually, one of my partners, the founder of the company, was was so distraught at one point that in a meeting with us, he said, "You know, I would just give you guys the equity if I could get off the uh, you know, off the personal guarantees and, and the liability for the lines of credit and the equipment." And, and of course, that really wasn't possible because it took all of our assets to do that. But um, so, I'm sorry, I, got, I lost track of that. No, I just uh, wondered if you guys were unanimous about the decision to sell, or whether it was oh, there. Oh yes, you know. absolutely, we were unanimous. It was. We clearly, we said, you know, if we can get back to a level of profitability where we're going to drive a multiple that makes sense, we need to sell the company. Now we, you know, we, and they were willing to accept a relatively low value for it. And, you know, I counseled that I thought we could do better than that. And if we, you know, if we could really build it back to the EBITDA multiple uh, that we thought we could get by driving profitability, uh, that we should just wait. So we waited about a, a year longer to make sure that the profitability had really stabilized. What did they think you could get for the business in terms of multiple of EBITDA? And, and what did you think you could get in terms of multiple yeah. of EBITDA? That's a good question. You know, um, there were some large economic buyers in, in the marketplace at the time that were that were basically trying to go and, and buy small to medium-sized printing companies for 2x, 3x. And um, through my experience and watching other firms like with the entrepreneurs organization, I really thought that we could get somewhere around six. And at the end of the day, uh, if you looked at all the different deal elements, the, the money that was paid in cash up front, there were some notes that were offered, uh, so basically financing, and then you know, kind of the traditional uh, earnout or incentive compensation. If you put all that together, it ended up being closer to eight x, which um, you know I was extremely proud of. So. And my partners were, were really happy with it. Yeah, especially the guy who wanted to give you his equity in return for just taking his note, name off the note. Yeah, we wouldn't we wouldn't do that to him. It would have been taken advantage. I mean, we I literally sat him down and said, "Greg, I can't. We can't do that. You're going to regret that." And he he thanked us eventually. <laughs> I, I should hope so. So get us into the deal itself. So did you take the business to market? Did you hire an M and A firm? I mean, walk us through that process. That's a great question. So. I'd spent uh, about 10 years studying M&A just, you know, kind of from a distance. And I did reach out to private equity and investment banks and they looked at us and they just said, you know, we're, we're just not interested in, in deals of this size. They're typically looking to 20 to $50 million companies. Um, so that door wasn't really open. Uh, so then we just started what the best advisor that I had was actually a local CPA who um, worked in and around the printing industry and had done, you know, a lot of the book work and the annual reviews for all these different firms that were our competitors. And so I just had a copy with him one day and he ended up becoming more or less our broker. And of course, you know, his motivation was he was going to get the accounting fees for the transaction and, and he'd been doing our, our, our CPA work anyway. So he was very connected and not only that, he became kind of a mentor. He took me under his wing and, you know, he really, he told me which deals were worth pursuing. He found a buyer that was down in California, you know, we're up in Washington. And so we had several companies in the deal, um, which helps when you're bidding and you know, getting people bidding for your business. So if it wasn't for that leadership, I don't think we would have done as well. If we'd gone to a traditional business broker, 
that didn't really know the printing industry and especially that didn't know the Washington marketplace, we probably wouldn't have sold to a competitor. And I now understand that selling to a competitor is really where you're going to drive uh, potentially the highest strategic value and the highest multiple, which was also the scariest because, you know, you are showing uh, your, your competitors, your, your business model and your, your secret sauce. But um, yeah, so that's kind of how, how that whole thing occurred. And talked to a lot of different people in and around M&A and especially friends that had gone through it uh, in my EO group here in Seattle. And I've got an EO uh, forum that's up and down the West Coast and some guys in Canada. So I got a chance to see other business that, businesses, large and small, that had gone through the process and really relied on them heavily as in addition to the professional services folks that we had here in the area, like the attorneys and the accountants. So. So were you, was the CPA firm able to get a, a bit of a bidding war going or did you get, you, you did get two separate offers at different times, but when you, when you were able to get the offer from uh, the firm you mentioned, I've forgotten its name, uh, DCG. DCG, was, uh, did you have another offer at the table or was it just the DCG offer that you were contemplating? You know, he was able to get them um, not exactly bidding against each other, but getting them interested at the same time. And he, and he played that well. Um, and I think he, he was looking out for both sides because I, ultimately he would like to have provided accounting services for the merged firm. Um, so he, he did, we did kind of play good cop, bad cop to a degree. However, these guys were astute enough that the, you know, the, the deal that they were going to offer ended up being about the same deal uh, on the one that didn't go through. And I think he helped position that by communicating the needs of, you know, me and my partners and, um, the deal structure drove the value up. If it had been an all cash deal, which is rare, it would have been a much lower multiple and we would have made less money. So he did a good job of communicating what we wanted and understanding what they were capable of and just kind of running interference. Um, I was the main negotiator, but there's there's times when you just, you know, you can't do that. And, and I was also asked to join the firm uh, for on an employment agreement. So I had to, you know, make sure that the relationship I had with the buyers was good through a, you know, a tenuous process because, you know, selling a company is very emotional and things don't always work out like you'd like to see them. And inevitably you may take a haircut at the end. That's kind of standard. So the value drops a little bit and that can be frustrating. So yeah, we needed him to kind of help us manage all of that. What was the most frustrating part of the negotiation? Um, Actually, the most frustrating part was the legal side. Um, I really enjoyed deal making and I liked the negotiation. And, you know, there were times when uh, the president of that, that firm and I would butt heads in a meeting and it, and it felt pretty intense. And, you know, I would have to back, back off and just relax a little bit. That wasn't frustrating. But um, after we got diligence done and after they had given us a term sheet and they said, you know, we're going to go ahead with this deal the amount of time and energy, if not money, that we put into dealing with the um, purchase and sale agreement was just way beyond what I'd expected. It was, you know, and, and I pretty much tried to keep my hands on that entire process and help write it. And so working with not just the primary attorney, but their paralegals, and it was just ridiculous. And that, of course, both sides have their attorneys working on, on the deal. And you're never sure whether the attorneys are really, they really need to do all this work. And you talked a little bit earlier about representations and warranties. That section right there took weeks. And uh, I was primarily the person that was providing the information because 
those survive for years. They can survive for 20 years. So, you know, I didn't want to miss anything. <laughs> so it was very frustrating and I, it exhausted me. And towards the end, I kind of just threw in the towel. Um, and, you know, the, my attorney wanted to negotiate hard on some liability issues. And I understood that they were important. I did understand what he was saying, but I finally just said, you know what, we just have to get this deal done and move on. It's, it's taking too much time. It's, you know, we understand the risks and we're just, we're just not going to go that far with it. And, and we still wrote a very good deal and so did the other side, but yeah, that was frustrating. If you had it to do over again, in particular around these legals and the frustration, is there anything that you might do differently or counsel other entrepreneurs to do differently in particular around this frustration around the legals? No, I think you have to do it. And, um, and I think it's a good process because, you know, you're basically signing off on what you sold. And uh, and it's going to it's going to live on for quite some time. And, and the, you know, the buyer could come back at, at some point in the future and, and sue you, basically. And so it just is is a necessary evil of, of, of uh, M&A. And, uh, you know, I, I guess I could potentially say, well, I shouldn't have done so much of it personally. You know, I think maybe a lot of people would just really outsource it and or let their financial staff kind of provide all the information. But I didn't feel confident about making those kinds of risk decisions unless I did it myself. So no, I wouldn't do it different. I'd have, I'd do it again, unfortunately. <laughs> Just have a, a big glass of scotch ready at the end of the night. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So you got eight, eight X or eight times EBITDA for the business all in. So including your earn out and, 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 and other things. Can you walk us through uh, the structure of the deal? What percentage upfront, uh, you know, the other elements that made up the eight X? Yeah, sure. Um, and I got to be careful because I'm going to be stepping around some non-disclosure issues. And, and ADX is kind of a, uh, that's kind of a number that I would like to believe to be true. And I think it's accurate. However, anytime you're talking about, let's talk about an earnout in particular. Um, it's always, it's, it's frequently incorporated into um, M&A because uh, when people buy the firm, they just don't want to use their cash. You know, some people say they don't want to use all the, the powder in their gun and they want to preserve it. Uh, you know, to use for other things in, in growing their business. So um, we agreed to take some money on on the back end, which was basically calculated as a percentage of our uh, current customer book, book of business over time. And, you know, how that performs over time uh, is variable. And so 8x could be true if we were if if we retain all the customers over the entire length of the earnout. However, if some of those customers were to go away or the printing marketplace continues to decline, obviously at the end of the day, that could be less and it wouldn't be 8x. But it was still a, a very good multiple. The, the other deal elements were uh, cash up front and then uh, notes, owner's notes, which are basically just um, almost like owner financing, uh, where, where they're just paying us over a term. And each shareholder got their uh, percentage of share ownership as a note that gets paid over that term. So if you took a look at the cash upfront, uh, if you took a look at the owner's notes, and if you took a look at the, the, the incentive compensation over time or earnout, uh, you know, that, that's how you get to the multiple that, that we put together. And, and the more we were willing to take on the back end, the more we, we were willing to take in owner financing or owner's notes, the more we were willing to take as potential payout and incentive compensation you know, that the, the more eager they got to buy our business. So there's kind of a, you know, a risk reward to that whole decision making process. And it, you know, it could be that maybe it won't come to pass, but uh, so far it has, they've been, they've been great. They've done a good job of retaining the customers and, 
and uh, things have worked out pretty well. So, so when does your earnout end? Uh, it was a uh, four-year deal. And 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 are you still in the midst of that, Kevin, or is it or is it done? Are those four years over? Uh, no, um, we're just over a year in. Got it. Got it. Excellent. Excellent. And and what's what's the earnout been like? Like what's it like being a man, like being an employee again after having spent so many years as a as an owner? Well, you know that's a that's a great question, and it's uh, it's one of those lessons learned. And um, you know, I think everyone I I saw a lot of people that sold their companies that kind of went through a period of of lower motivation. It takes so much effort and so much work just to get through the the deal making process and the legal process. That when you get on the other side and the funds actually get wire transferred into your bank, it's just like the first thing you want to do is grab a glass of champagne. The next thing you want to do is sleep for about six months. It's just that taxing. Uh, so they asked me to come on board in an executive role, and uh, that was a need that they they had to fill. fill and they believed that it was going to be a great a, a great opportunity for all of us. And and I was attracted to the company and and the owners. However, the role uh, over time wasn't as suitable as the role that I'd been in in the past. And I think that's that's very common with entrepreneurs where. Uh, you know, you're used to being the guy that makes the decisions. You have the control. You can provide the service level to your client. You can rally your team and do anything you want to in order to run your business. And, you know, when you sell your company and you become an employee, you're not that. And you need to learn how to ask for permission and, and sell your point. And uh, it was a it was a it was a real adjustment um, and a much more difficult adjustment than I thought it would be. What's your goal in the earnout structure? Is your goal tied to EBITDA of your old company, or is it client retention or tenure? Like, what what is the what's the bogey? What do you what do you have to hit? Uh, you know, there there I'm gonna be a little cagey on this because I'm gonna be stepping around my NDA, so I'm gonna have to to not really describe the specific details of how. How that works? Yeah, no problem Especially at all. Especially for something that's going to be published online. <laughs> yeah, no problem at all. Totally understand. Totally understand. But uh, it's helpful to know that the the, the structure included in Ernat it's four years. I mean, just emotionally, uh, how how would you characterize your your state now with three years left to go in the earnout? Well, um, you know, I it was. Uh, it was a great deal. And, you know, of course, any time that you're going to get paid variably over time based on some some performance, there's a little bit of insecurity. Um, but no matter what, there's always going to be something there. And, and it has the first year has been good. So there's no reason to believe that the next three won't as well. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you feel a little tenuous because you're not in control. And, uh, you know, it's done. And it is what it is. It's all calculated on a formula. And, you just have to cross your fingers and hope it really works out the way um, it was designed. How did you tell your employees you'd sold the business? That's a good question. You know, we we really tried to keep it under our hat for a long period of time. But the problem is, especially with basically two transactions, one that failed and then and then one that moved forward, th- those take a long time. I mean, diligence is usually 30 to 60 days. Just the back and forth and conversations about doing business take a couple of months. And uh, we... Although we tried to keep it secret, I think people could tell something was going on because we stopped investing in the business. We stopped having the strategy meetings and we stopped doing the customer sales uh, that we were doing in the past. And we were, we're always very aggressive on the revenue side and, and, and bringing in new deals. And so I'm sure that they knew something was going on. At the same time, I really believe that the company that bought us was the best possible thing for our employees. And I think that they would probably agree. Uh, you know, 
if the combined firm is the strongest graphics firm in the marketplace, everybody got jobs that wanted one. Um, most of them, many of them got uh, uh, retention bonuses for staying for a year. So um, when we told them, uh, there was a little bit of shock. Um, we got everybody together on the production floor and said, hey, we've made this decision. And, and then a week later, we brought the buyers in and introduced them. And, and, you know, people did have big eyes. I mean, you know, there was a little bit of fear there. But um, the buyers did a really good job of letting everybody know that they wanted to keep them and keep the clients and that they had a vision for the future and they have taken good care of them. And so I feel proud about that because given the industry that we were in and the declines that we've had in the past and kind of where we were at as owners, um, I don't know if we could have done as well if we retained the business. Hmm. Last question. Everybody has some indulgence they dream about. And when the check cleared, was there something that you went out and bought, some experience you had, some something you purchased that you've always dreamt of that, that, uh, that you went ahead and indulged yourself in after the sale? <laughs> you know, that's a great question. And uh, I have had a tradition for years of uh, whenever a big deal closes, I buy a watch. <laughs> so I got a big collection of watches and they're not, you know, they're not, you know, $10,000 watches, but uh, that's what I did. I went out and bought a watch. So I didn't go buy a house or a boat or an airplane. <laughs> I just like to have something that symbolized the deal. And uh, so that, that was my one indulgence. But for the most part, uh, you know, the money went in the bank and, uh, you know, looking forward to, you know, figuring out how to invest it in, in new, new business opportunities and becoming an entrepreneur again. So, Kevin, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, John. It was uh, very pleasurable. Nice talking to you. Nice to talk to you, too. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.